Good morning, First Baptist Church of Great Gables. Um, we miss you guys so much. We hope you've had a wonderful week in the Lord, a week of praise, a, a week of glorifying the name of Christ, a week of striving for godliness, and we're excited that you've tuned in with us this morning uh, to consider uh, another text through First Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6a kind of. Uh, really, we're going to be a little bit all over the place. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're actually going to start by reading in the book of Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 9. And then when we do our reading, we're to come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and read verses 2 through 10. Uh, we're going to consider this morning a sermon entitled Gospel Suffering. Uh, often when we consider suffering through the scriptures, we consider the sufferings that we experience as members generally in this fallen world and in this life. Uh, the various types of sufferings we experience as a result of living in a world that's marred and stained by sin. Um, how a wise person responds to those things and things like this. But this morning when I'm talking about suffering, I'm going to be speaking specifically of the afflictions that the saints endure on behalf of the name of Christ, on behalf of the gospel. And so uh, let's consider that together and let's begin by going ahead and reading in Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 9 and then we'll flip back over the 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and read verses 2 through 10. Here's what Acts 17, 1 through 9. Luke records this for us. Now, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, "'This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ.'" And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Verse 5, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people." But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the whole world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's flip back now to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, and we're going to read really what we've already covered. In fact, next week we're going to try and, and bring this all home in chapter 1. But let's read verses 2 through 10. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. 
so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. For for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for meeting us already here this morning by your grace. We thank you um, for even in this online service, the songs that we've heard sung, the scriptures that we've read, um, and how we're now coming to you and praying these things. Father, we thank you for the gospel, the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he has taken upon himself the suffering that we deserve. Um, he's given us the righteousness we don't deserve. And so, Father, we come before your throne of grace to hear once again from your word. Father, I pray that all that is spoken from my mouth that is true would penetrate each heart listening to this this morning, bringing edification for your people and repentance and faith for those who do not yet trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, but if there's anything that's said that does not reflect the truth of your holy word, let it fall harmlessly to the ground. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. We see in verse 6 that the Thessalonians have received this word from Paul in much affliction. And as I considered that this week, what struck me was that the word itself was a word of Christ's afflictions. It was brought to them by a messenger, Paul, who himself had suffered much affliction. And it was spoken to an audience of people who would have to suffer much affliction in order to receive this message. And I thought, I think we need to understand this better. And so I want to look at each of these afflictions and sufferings in turn and then look at how we suffer because we don't have a theology of suffering. The reality is, as we begin, as Paul proclaimed the gospel to the Thessalonians, it was necessary for Christ to suffer. It was necessary for Christ to suffer. This was Paul's message in Thessalonica. Paul arrived there and as was his habit, he headed straight for the synagogue. We see that. And then uh, if you don't know what the synagogue is, it's the meeting place for the Jewish people and they met on the Sabbath every week. Paul went there for three straight Sabbaths and reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, don't miss that this was not the common conception of the Messiah. Remember, most Messianic conceptions thought the Messiah was going to come and establish a kingdom as a mighty king, as a, as a conqueror, as a ruler, not a sufferer. But Paul comes proclaiming that Christ was always meant to come and suffer. Luke records an example of this teaching more specifically in Acts chapter 13. There, Paul and Barnabas, they're on their first missionary journey. And Paul uh, arrives at Antioch in Pisidia. 
he goes once again to the synagogue, as was his custom. He preaches there. I'm not going to read the whole sermon, but more or less what he does is he sums up all of redemptive history from the patriarchs all the way to John the Baptist. And, and while he's doing this, he's highlighting and emphasizing that Jesus is the offspring of David. Jesus is the one that God had promised to send. And then he says something in Acts chapter 13, verse 26 and on. Look at what he says. He says, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Paul actually says that the elders uh, actually put Christ to death exactly how the prophets said would happen because they didn't understand the prophets. You get that? The Messiah had to suffer according to the prophets. And the lack of the understanding of the elders of Israel accomplished God's goal in bringing that back. And so in verse 28, he goes on and says, And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. And now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Friends, this is really what is at the heart of Paul's message. This is what was at the heart of Paul's message. Christ had to suffer. Christ had to suffer. Notice that Paul here He's simply expanding the Hebrew Bible. He is unrolling the scroll in the synagogue. He's showing them the Old Testament scriptures and saying, listen, it's always said this. Uh, he doesn't tell them about the vision that he had on the road to Damascus. He doesn't claim that he heard a special voice from heaven tell him this. He takes them to the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Uh, Paul was able to point out the, the Messiah had to suffer uh, already because his audience also had a pretty firm understanding of who God is. Remember, in the Jewish custom, they knew God's holiness. They knew his righteousness. They knew his disposition towards sin. They understood that atonement was necessary, but they just didn't know that the Messiah was going to be the one who actually accomplished atonement for them. This is what Paul persuaded them when he reasoned with them from the Old Testament scriptures. So it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die in the place of sinners. Without his sufferings, friends, we'd still be in our sin. As Peter wrote, uh, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. The sufferings of Christ were, were unrepeatable. And, and, and this is important. The other sufferings that we'll uh, discuss today, they're not the same as the sufferings of Christ in this particular way. Uh, these sufferings, the sufferings of Christ, are unique and unrepeatable. They're unique and unrepeatable. Paul's not simply saying that Jesus had to be beaten, Jesus had to be ridiculed, he had to be mocked. He's not saying that. He's saying Jesus had to suffer and satisfy the full wrath of God. He had to suffer and satisfy at the hands of divine justice. In fact, in Acts 13, 29, there's a reference to that specifically where he says, they took him down from the tree. 
Really, that would have reminded anybody who knew their Hebrew Bible of the text that all are cursed who hang on a tree. In fact, Paul quotes that text in Galatians chapter 3.13, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Remember, friends, Jesus simply didn't suffer. He simply, he didn't simply suffer physical discomfort on the cross, though he did do that. He did suffer physical discomfort, certainly, but it was much more than that. He suffered the horrible, excruciating, unbearable torment of God's righteous wrath. He bore the penalty of sins for each and every sinner that uh, that he would save. He bore each and every one of their sins that his people have committed from the Garden of Eden to the day of his return. That is a unique and unrepeatable amount of suffering. So certainly, yes, Christ had to suffer. It was necessary for him to suffer. But we also see something else throughout the thread of Scripture, and that is it was necessary for the apostles to suffer. Not only was it necessary for Christ to suffer, but it was necessary for the apostles to suffer. We've seen that Paul suffered, right? In fact, just before he arrives at Thessalonica, we've been over this, he was in Philippi. And in Philippi, he's taken and he's unjustly convicted, he's stripped, he's beaten in public, and then he was thrown into prison. And in fact, his beating is so bad that after Paul shares the gospel with the Philippian jailer and he's converted, he, the Philippian jailer takes Paul and he begins to cleanse Paul's wounds. So Paul had certainly suffered. Jesus had actually said that Paul would suffer. Jesus told Ananias shortly after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. But this was not uncommon. See, Jesus told all of his disciples that they would suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. This is something he said to everyone. Jesus told all of his disciples that they would suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. In fact, in Matthew 24, 9, Jesus tells his disciples that they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus was speaking prophetically here. He wasn't simply saying, hey, this, this might happen. He's letting them know this is how it's going to end. You're going to proclaim my message and you are going to be handed up and ultimately you are going to give your life. And as we know, as far as we know, every apostle, every disciple was martyred apart from John and John suffered tremendously. So the gospel of God's suffering servant would have to be carried out to the ends of the earth by suffering servants. All the apostles suffered. Peter's told specifically that his life would end in martyrdom. We remember that from our study in the end of the book of John. Uh, Some of their afflictions had actually uh, been recorded for us in the Bible. In Acts chapter 5, verse 40, for instance, referring to John and Peter, the Bible says, And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. Paul recalls his own suffering in our scripture reading for the day in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 29 uh, Paul understood that these sufferings, they weren't superfluous. Uh, they simply are a byproduct of his gospel ministry. They, they were an integral part of his gospel ministry. It wasn't a byproduct. It was an integral part of his gospel ministry. 
In fact, if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, we read this. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body uh, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Paul was constantly given over to death so that the power of resurrection life could be more clearly seen by the elect. Do you see this? Paul's endurance of suffering was not simply a side effect. It was the means by which the gospel of Jesus' sufferings were more clearly portrayed in his weakness. Suffering and affliction, friends, they're necessary. It wasn't just necessary for Jesus to suffer. It wasn't just necessary for the apostles to suffer. It was also necessary for the Thessalonians to suffer. If you turn back to Acts chapter 17, you'll see that the word proclaimed to the Thessalonians was in the context of so much opposition. Luke records it for us. Some of the Jews had organized a riot to oppose Paul and to oppose the gospel of Christ. In fact, these Jews in Thessalonica even followed Paul to the next place he would go, the place at Berea, again, stirring up the crowds against him there. Uh, Paul's message was inflammatory. He was preaching Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, offensive to both. So to accept Paul's message of the suffering Messiah was to accept unavoidable, inevitable suffering. We see that. We see that their reception of the gospel of God was in much affliction. It's what our text says in verse 6. Part A, their reception of the gospel of God was in much affliction. Please don't miss this. If Paul had just simply been offering another God for them to worship, at least the Gentiles outside of the synagogue, uh, they would have accepted that. They would have been fine with that. But he wasn't adding another deity that they could add to their pantheon. He was calling them to repentance to turn from idols. He was calling them to faith. He was calling them to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Christ who had suffered. Christ who was raised from the dead. Paul was telling all people everywhere that there is one name in heaven given among men by which we could be saved. It was Jesus of Nazareth. There is only one way to the true and living God. There is only one truth. There is only one source of life. The Christ who came and suffered. The Christ who was crucified, the Christ who was raised from the dead, and the Christ who ascended to the right hand of the Father. This Jesus Christ is Lord. And his heralds were calling for a singular and complete allegiance to him. We miss that. Uh, for the Thessalonians to cross that line, to receive Paul's proclamation of Jesus Christ, to trust in Christ alone for salvation it was to become an enemy to the world. Both Jew and, G and Greek. The gospel came with suffering. 
It came in the midst of affliction. It was unavoidable. If you wanted Christ, you had to take suffering. In fact, Paul brings it up again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Here we read this. He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. They suffered the same thing from the churches of Christ Jesus who were in Judea. They suffered the same things. In Judea, the churches had suffered the affliction at the hands of their fellow Jews. In Thessalonica, the Thessalonians suffered at the hands of other Thessalonians, but all suffered. It was a package deal. Uh, Paul suffered in order to explain to the Thessalonians that Jesus Christ had to suffer, and those who heard and believed in this gospel received it in suffering. They suffered for the sake of his name. Paul goes on to write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses uh, 2 through 4. He says these words. He says, I sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. Far from being optional or possible, Paul told the Thessalonians that suffering would actually be normative. Suffering wasn't an extraordinary event in the life of the Thessalonians. It was what the Thessalonians believers, what they were called to one commentator notes this. He says, Paul is not thinking of a period of persecution which will pass and the church will then return to normality. Normality is persecution. They were catechized by Paul in a theology of suffering. When they received this letter from Paul, they were suffering. The Thessalonians had received the gospel of Christ's sufferings in the midst of much affliction. And friends, this is not just what Paul taught here. This is what Paul taught to all the churches. This is not unique to the Thessalonians. This is what Paul taught to all the churches. In fact, Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 14 and 15, after Paul plants all the churches that he plants, he goes back through. And, and this is what Paul said and did as he passed through those churches. It says in Acts 14, 22, he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We're going to suffer, he says. He doesn't tell them we might suffer. He says we must. At the end of his life, he's still teaching the very same message. In fact, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And of course, Paul's not alone in this message. Peter also taught this very same thing in 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. Friends, the persecution of this world isn't strange. It isn't. It's a version of what every Christian should experience because finally, as we see, it's also necessary for us to suffer. It's also necessary for us to suffer. And here's really the question we have to ask ourselves. 
Why don't we suffer? And, and listen, remember, I'm not talking generally here. Many of you might respond, I've, I've suffered greatly. I'm not talking about the suffering that we all experience because of this sin-stained world. I'm not talking about uh, the suffering we experience from being disciplined in our sin even that brings that suffering. I'm not talking about experiencing the consequences of sin that brings suffering. I'm not talking even about physical suffering. I mean, in this present evil age where we are, unbelievers and believers will suffer alike. We should respond to it, yes, in a godly way. There's a sermon for that type of suffering in a way that honors the Lord. But I'm not talking about that suffering. Friends, I want to be careful here. I'm also not talking about the kind of suffering that comes from being obnoxious and insensitive to the Holy Spirit's leaning and also to people. I'm not talking about being abrasive with the purpose of trying to destroy relationships instead of build them and immediately then victimizing yourself in sort of some self-martyrdom. That's not what I'm referring to. If you experience disdain from people because you're insensitive or haughty, repent. Uh, If you experience suffering because you've been purposeful in destroying relationships uh, with, with a, a wicked intent to victimize yourself and receive praise for that, repent. That's not the suffering I'm referring to. But my question still remains, do we suffer for the gospel? If not, why? Paul seems to be saying that all who belong to Christ Jesus will endure suffering. Why are we not And I'll just say it up front. I'm convinced that many of us don't. At least not in the way we should. And I'm convinced that we need to repent. That's my prayer in all of this. That we repent and that we're deeply convicted. The church in the West in our day, we have abandoned, we have jettisoned our theology of suffering. And the reality is we don't have a theology of suffering and we are suffering because we don't have a theology of suffering. I heard a brother say just the other day when I was sharing this sermon with him, really in the West, we're the trust fund kids of Christianity when it comes to suffering. We don't even know what to do with these verses that teach all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We don't even have a category for that. Listen, church, we've been deceived. Can I tell you that? And let me just spend the rest of our time here today. uh, uh, Allow me just to list a few of the lies that we've bought that bring harm to a theology of suffering. I want to just go through some of these lies that I think we specifically as a church in the West and in this nation, lies that we've bought that really bring harm to our idea that we ought to suffer for the sake of Christ. First, the first lie we've bought, we've bought the lie that we live in a Christian nation. Bear with me, don't turn off the computer just yet or the TV just yet. We've bought the lie that we live in a Christian nation. I know we've talked about this a couple weeks ago, um, that you know that that that's where I stand. I don't believe that this is a Christian nation, but by and large, we've bought that lie. And so here's what we do is we wrongly assume that our society is tolerant or has ever been tolerant of the exclusive claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not. 
And I know that's more apparent in our day and age now. And yet, we still cling to this idea that it ever was tolerant. That our society ever was really genuinely tolerant of the exclusive claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. It never was. Friends, our society is no more accepting of the exclusivity of the gospel demand for faith and repentance than Thessalonica was in the first century. That's the reality. Our society, like Thessalonica, says, yeah, Jesus is fine for Sunday mornings, but he's got no place in society at large. If you want to worship in Jesus, and you want to worship Jesus in entertainment, that's fine. You can be entertained on Sunday, and then Hollywood will take care of you the rest of the week. If you want to worship Jesus in power, that's fine. Jesus will be there like some sort of genie to help you out when you don't have enough strength. But the rest of the time, you pursue your own forms of power. Jesus in pleasure. Uh, Jesus and money, the list goes on and on. We need to wake up. Paul told us that you and I, we are destined for affliction. And part of the reason we don't experience that affliction is that we've bought this lie that we should not. The second lie I think we've bought is that we've been told that it is our inalienable right to pursue happiness. I'll say that again. The second lie we've bought is we've been told that it is our inalienable right to pursue happiness. The church as well as the society of Alard has bought this wholesale without any attempt to define that word happiness or to consider the limits of our rights. There is no limit to pursue my own happiness as I define it. There's no limit to that. And this is common inside the church and outside the church. We have recreated God in our image and made his ultimate concern our comfort and pleasure. We assume that the pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of what makes me feel good. And we've been deceived. What did Jesus say? In Matthew 6, in the Beatitudes, what did he say? He said this, blessed are those... Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and and be exceedingly glad, he says. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And listen, I'm not saying that the pursuit of happiness should be replaced by the pursuit of suffering. See, Part of the problem is happiness is not a goal that you can reach in a direct line anyway. It's an illusion our country is built on. That you and I, that we are able to pursue happiness directly. It's like humility. I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to be the humblest person in this room. It doesn't work that way. You can't pursue it directly. And Christ knows that. So he teaches his people often, no, 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 no. Happiness is not gained by pursuing happiness. Happiness and blessing is gained by pursuing me. Pursuing, following, obeying me. Following me will bring you happiness. But following me will also bring you suffering. Following Jesus will bring persecution. 
So Jesus says, if you want to experience real joy, if you want to have a real pursuit of happiness, follow me and it will become your joy and happiness. Listen, almost every passage we've considered always connects suffering with joy. We know these passages, don't we? Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus, who was who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Peter and John, after being beaten by the council in Acts chapter 5, went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Peter and Silas were praying and singing in the jail cell. Likewise, the Thessalonian believers, according to one uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 6 says, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Do we have a category for this? We don't. We don't understand that. Listen to me. When we suffer, we're not filled with joy because we've suffered for the sake of Christ's name. When we suffer, we're angry because someone has transgressed our inalienable right to be happy. Christians, we are called to suffer for the sake of Christ's name. Suffering for Christ, when understood in light of the theology of suffering, is a great source of joy. It is. The third lie that we've bought is this. Too much of our teaching, talking specifically within the church, too much of our teaching has implied that favor with God equals physical, material, and emotional blessing. Too much of our teaching has implied that favor with God equals physical, material, or emotional blessing. I know we don't believe in the prosperity gospel, but we teach it. We are Job's counselors in the pulpit all the time. Obedience will equal blessing here and now. We are going to experience the richness of material and emotional blessing. But let's look at the scriptures. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Paul was suffering to the point of despairing of life itself. And he goes on, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Great suffering. He also says, As we know in Philippians chapter 3, yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being comforted to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, for Paul and his sufferings, it was an inevitable part of his sanctification, of his growing to be made more like Jesus. Paul, Paul suffered as much as anyone listening to this has suffered. But it didn't diminish his experience of God's goodness, church. 
It didn't diminish his experience of God's goodness, his faithfulness, and his love in sanctification. It actually enhanced it. It was part of it. Christian, we are called to suffer. Uh, We may not be martyred, but if we hunger for righteousness, we hunger for Christ, we will suffer for following him. The world will hate the light that shines forth from us just as it hated the light that shined forth from Christ himself. And here's my contention. The reason we often don't suffer is one, because we don't believe we're supposed to. So two, we diminish that light. Christian, we aren't suffering not because we live in a culture that loves Jesus. We aren't suffering because we really aren't proclaiming the gospel. The reality is that there are opportunities to suffer for the gospel nearly every single day. Most of us have even experienced these afflictions to some extent. Listen, who in here has not suffered as a relationship with a family member has all but been destroyed because of our faith in Christ? And we're tempted to think at times, that's just not right. But let's be honest, oftentimes the affliction in this way doesn't come from a stranger. Most of our sufferings will be in the very relationships that we adore most. How many times have we held our tongue to preserve a relationship when we know we have an opportunity to speak the truth of Christ? In love and in compassion, yes. I'm not saying we we purposely throw away that relationship, but we feel the sensitivity of the Spirit say, Here's an opportunity to speak truth. And we reject it. How many of us have, in order to appease a spouse, not met with the saints? In reality, we have made a conscious choice to not suffer for the gospel. We do it in all sorts of ways. In small ways, in subtle ways, largely because we don't believe we're supposed to suffer How many of us participate in vulgar conversation in our workplaces because we don't want to be ostracized? Christian, you're supposed to be ostracized. You're supposed to appear strange to a culture that hates Christ. You're supposed to suffer. And I promise you, there are opportunities you will have every single day. You don't have to go around parading with a sign that says Jesus hates everyone but me and mine. You don't have to be abrasive or obnoxious or insensitive or looking for relationships you can destroy so you can play in your martyring self-righteousness. All you have to do is love Jesus enough to obey him and you will suffer for his sake. And so I, I just want to conclude this heavy, heavy stuff Stuff that's been convicting my heart all week. I want to conclude this with a question. What did Jesus mean when he told us to count the cost? What did Jesus mean when he he told us to count the cost in Luke 14? Most of you are familiar with this illustration that Jesus gives of counting the cost. He says in verse 28, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Friends, if somebody just asked you, what does that mean? What does that cost? Most of us would have a hard time answering. We would think, Jesus paid the cost. What, what do I need to pay? Well, Jesus explicitly tells us right here what the cost is for following him. 
He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 33 says, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And I want us to ask ourselves, are we not suffering because we have not truly embraced our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus in that text in John 14 that we just read, I want to clear this up. He's not issuing an imperative here. He's saying anyone who does not set aside every other allegiance and make his primary allegiance to me is not my disciple. Anyone who does not renounce all things for my sake is not my disciple. It's an indicative. It's it's a fact And I'm convinced that we need to repent. Maybe not each and every one of us, but probably most of us. I would say collectively that if we're willing to proclaim Christ boldly, if we're willing to live for him despite what the culture says, to obey the commands that he sets before us, to set aside every other allegiance, it will cost us and we will suffer. And to that, I've I've only got one thing to say and conclude with. If that's the case, if we set aside everything and we proclaim our allegiance to Christ and we follow him and we suffer because of it, praise God. Praise God. Because he's worthy of it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, it seems like a strange thing to ask for the grace of suffering. But Lord, your church has suffered greatly because its under shepherds, its leaders have refused to prepare your people, refused to prepare Christ's church to suffer well. Father, would you forgive us where we've participated in that and where we've bought into the lies, where we've failed to, or worse, Lord, we have denied Christ in our relationships in order to keep some sort of creaturely comfort. Forgive us. Make us bold for Christ. And yet give us sensitivity in the Spirit. Lord, to know when to build relationship and know that our ultimate cause for each relationship is to proclaim the gospel. Help us to embrace whatever that may cost us, whatever suffering or affliction that may bring. Let us only live for Jesus Christ so that you might be honored and glorified in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Church family, this is, a, this is a weighty sermon. I know that. This is a difficult text. And so here's what I want to do. I, I, I want to know if, if there's any way where you know that you have suffered for the sake of Christ and a broken relationship and so on, I just want to pray for you. That's the beauty of the church is we don't have to suffer alone. We suffer together. We lean upon one another. We strengthen one another. Iron sharpens iron in that. And so if there's any way I can pray for you specifically. Friends, m- many of you may have relationships in your life or Um, some areas in your life where you have not pledged full allegiance to Christ in that. My charge to you is to repent. There's grace that is sufficient for you. 
I'm so, I'm so glad that the Lord gives us grace to pursue him. And so if you are in need of, to experience that grace and just repenting of your sins, as a Christian even, please let me know. If there's any way I can encourage you and help you live more boldly for the sake of Christ, I would love that. And of course, maybe, maybe you know you've never experienced suffering for the sake of Christ's name because you've never given your life to Christ in any way, shape, or form. You don't have any allegiance to Christ. If you're listening to this, please hear me. The things that you're pursuing in this life will not bring you that inalienable right to happiness. The only way to try to find true joy is to find it in eternity. Knowing what Christ has done on your behalf, knowing who Christ is, and submitting your life over to him. And, and listen, I don't want to tell you that following Christ is going to be all candy canes and rainbows. It's difficult. You may suffer. But friends, what Christ is offering you is a relationship that surpasses every relationship in this world. Every relationship you could possibly imagine. A loving relationship where he will shepherd you, love you, comfort you, and give you all that you need to live for your ultimate purpose, which is to glorify him. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, please reach out and contact us. Let us know how we can share this message with you. I love you, church family. I'm here for you. Please call, text, whatever you need to do, get a hold of us, and we'd be happy to minister to you in any way that you need. God bless you. Thank you for listening. You're dismissed.